Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hugo Award winner Sarah Gailey is an internationally published writer of fiction and nonfiction. Their nonfiction has been published by Mashable and the Boston Globe. Their most recent fiction credits include Fireside Fiction, Tor.com, and The Atlantic. Their debut novella, River of Teeth, which is incredible. Um, hippos? <laughs> Alternate history hippos? Please, yes, thank you. Uh, was published in 2017 via Tor.com and was a 2018 Hugo Nebula Award finalist. Their adult novel debut, Magic for Liars, was published in June 2019. Their YA de debut, When We Were Magic, which you all know about, is available now, right up there at the counter. Please purchase copies. Uh, Mallory O'Meara is the best-selling author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon, along with being a screenwriter and film producer. Whether it's for the screen or the page, Mallory seeks creative projects filled with horror and monsters. Every week, she hosts the literary podcast Reading Glasses. She lives in Los Angeles. You can follow Mallory on Twitter at Mallory O'Mara or visit her website, MalloryOmara.com. All right, without further ado, please give a warm skylight welcome to Sarah Gailey and Mallory O'Mara. Oh my God, look at all of you. Wow. Thank you for being here tonight. Look at all the cool hair. Clap for each other. I always get annoyed when people are like, give yourself a round of applause, because I'm like, ew. <laughs> but I mean, you all know that everyone around you is fabulous and perfect. Just like I know that the person sitting across from me is fabulous and perfect. Also, there's four seats up front. If anyone wants yeah. to sit, Come on, I promise is, we don't bite. This is weird and bare. I don't make any promises. I'm not going <laughs> to promise. I don't see very well, so I'm not going to get you. I've been practicing being in public spaces without biting people. And I'm at like a... They're doing great. A great is strong. I'm at like a 85% success rate. So thank you for being here. Thank you um, so much for coming out. We're very excited. Yeah. Thank to you. our second event at, together at Skylight Books. Is this place not perfect? I mean, it has a tree. <laughs> right? And uh, last time we were here, we got to see the cat that lives upstairs that was completely disinterested in us. A uh, very classical cat style was like, I'm here. But there is a cat here, which is what's important. <laughs> Perfect. That's all I want in the world. Um, so the way we're going to do tonight, yes. I'm going to read a story to you. This one. And I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do readings. Uh, I did my own audiobook, so I, if you want to hear me read the book, <laughs> you, you can listen to that. Uh, but I will talk to you about things, but I'm not going to read this book for you. And then we're going to talk to each other, and hopefully like that will be you know, edutaining. It's going to be great. And we're going to try really hard not to swear because I know there's at least one child in the audience. I'm going to try really hard not to swear. And child, I'm sorry, <laughs> in advance because the reading I'm about to do. You're a YA author now. You can't swear. I do, but the reading I'm about to do from my YA book is, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. You got to learn sometime what happens when you have magic powers and you try and have sex with somebody. Yeah. So like, it'll be fine. Also before Sarah reads, I just want to take us, take a moment for So Sarah and I are both authors and we are both friends and we both love each other's work. It's like very pure, wonderful friendship. Uh, 
When We Were Magic is going to be my favorite YA release of the year. It healed my insides. It's an absolutely wonderful book about friendship and female power and the things that you need to make the next stage of your life. I read it almost in one sitting. It's absolutely wonderful, and it is so, 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 so good. So if you are here for me, if you are here to talk about Lady from the Black Lagoon, I'm, I promise you that When We Were Magic is in your wheelhouse. And that means the entire world to me because Lady from the Black Lagoon was easily my favorite nonfiction read of 2019. Probably my favorite nonfiction read ever, which is saying something. Don't because make I really me love cry. Nonfiction. I did not wear waterproof mascara tonight. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna ruin this face. I'm gonna get you. Um, Lady from the Black Lagoon is an incredible book about being a woman in Hollywood, about you know creature creation, and about the finding of the self in a landscape that doesn't particularly welcome you. Um, it's completely beautiful, and it's one of the tenderest works of nonfiction I've ever read. Oh, it, Sarah Cayley. It's like, instead of it being It does have like, swear words, though. I'm so sorry. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> um, instead of being like, I'm a nonfiction book, I have to be objective. This book ah. says, hey, people who write nonfiction books are inherently subjective because objectivity is a complete myth. So what if we embrace that and acknowledge it? And it's so gorgeous. All right, so we're going to kick off. Thank you. Some, the one person who started clapping. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, Sarah's, Sarah's right. going to kick it off and read their wonderful book. Okay, so uh, when we were magic, the I'm going to read to you from the first chapter. And if you are a person who uh, prefers not to be exposed to uh, particular violence of a magical sexual variety, uh, this might That's actually how I you. would describe you, Sarah Gailey. <laughs> Uh, anyway, you know, um, if you have tender ears, cover them. And otherwise, should we do it? Let's do it. Okay, all right, let's do it. I didn't mean to kill Josh Harper. Really, I didn't. It's just that I was nervous, and condoms are more complicated than I was expecting, and one thing led to another, and, well, now there's blood everywhere, and he's dead. I wipe my hands on the rumpled sheets until they're clean enough that I can pull my underwear on. I put on my bra, but I can't get the hooks done. My hands won't stop shaking. In the end, I leave it unhooked. I pull my dress on over it and struggle to grip the zipper on the side. By the time I get the dress zipped up, blood has stopped pumping out of Josh Harper, and naked feels like a hundred years ago. I'm not sure where my shoes are. I know that I kicked them off, but I can't remember when or where. I'm turning around in a slow circle, staring at the floor, watching for the flash of my gold heels. I catch a glimpse of myself in the full-length mirror on the back of Josh's door. I'm a blur of bright blue, and I realize that my vision is fuzzy because my eyes are brimming with tears. Okay, I whisper to myself. Okay, okay, just think, 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 think. I wipe up my eyes and try to look at anything that isn't my reflection or the bed. The room is dark save for the light of a desk lamp, which casts a soft yellow glow on the desk and the bed. Josh is on the bed. There's so much blood on the bed. I smooth my skirt. My palm catches on a patch of glitter, which immediately sheds, raining sparkles onto the carpet. I wipe my hand on a non-glittery section of skirt, leaving behind a bright smear of silver. I frown. I hate glitter. Why did I pick a dress with glitter on it? Probably because Roya said it looked good on me. Even as I stare at my skirt, frowning, I know that I'm not thinking straight. You're in shock, I think, but I can't stop glaring at that stupid patch of glitter. I want to scream. I can't believe I didn't already scream. My phone buzzes in my purse and I nearly have a heart attack. My purse is at the foot of the bed. My phone is buzzing and I have to get to it and it's on the bed, on the bed where Josh is, on the bed with all the blood. Shit. Okay, I can do this. I just won't look. I reach over and accidentally grab Josh's foot. <laughs> 
It's still warm. And he's still wearing his socks. Ten minutes ago, he was telling me that they weren't his socks. He borrowed them from his dad. He laughed nervously while I pushed him backward onto the bed, stopping him from taking them off. What's your hurry, he asked me, and I shoved his mouth onto his instead of answering, and then... I let go of his foot and grabbed my purse. It's a little tiny, sparkly thing that's totally impractical and only fits my student ID and my cell phone. I fumble with a clasp, which is slippery with blood. My phone buzzes inside again twice in a row. The group text is going crazy. It takes me a long time to reply. Autocorrect can't interpret the fumbling input of my shaking hands. Josh's bedroom, 911. Five minutes later, five girls pour into the bedroom. My best friends. Four one-night-in-a-lifetime dresses, plus Polly's powder blue tux. They're all in here, and nobody is missing them, because we all went to prom alone together in solidarity with Iris after her boyfriend cheated on her. Well, everyone except Roya, and she ditched tall Matt halfway through the night anyway. The point is that we're all single, but none of us is alone, and that's how we want it. At least until the end of the year. Why am I thinking about this? There's something else I should be thinking about. Oh. Right. I look at the girls. They're all gorgeous, all perfectly themselves and shining with party sweat, and they're all looking at me. They're all looking at me, at me, at me. I can't look back at them. I can't look away. There's nowhere safe for my eyes to land. They're too bright. The colors are too saturated. It's too much. Roya's wearing a deep red gown, and I can't look at her. My mouth is dry. My hands are too big. I feel short. Iris looks at me like I'm a monster, like I've got an eyeball hanging out. I know what I look like. I look like a girl you'd forget if she didn't just have that just-killed-a-boy aesthetic going on. I look like a girl on a prom night gone horribly, horribly wrong. Wide-set brown eyes that are probably glassy with nauseated fear, curly brown hair that just passes my shoulders, stiff with hairspray, and I almost had sex must. Eyeliner runoff halfway down my cheeks. Blood. Blood everywhere. I don't need to look in a mirror to know that I'm a mess. Iris is the one staring at me, and Iris is the first one to speak. Well, she says, what did you do? Here is what I did. I tried to have sex with Josh Harper. Now, I didn't really want to have sex with Josh Harper, but I wanted to have sex with someone. And Josh Harper was around and relatively sober, and I felt his boner against the top of my butt when he tried to grind on me at prom, so I figured it wouldn't be too tricky to get him to have sex with me. And I was right, sort of. Oh my god, Marcelina says, covering her black lipstick mouse with her hands. Oh my god, Alexis, oh my god, what? happened to his dick. <laughs> Here is what happened to Josh's dick. It exploded. And I was trying to get the condom on him, and I guess I was doing it upside down or something. I don't know. It looked a lot easier in the YouTube video I watched with the banana, but the room was dark, and I couldn't really see what I was doing, and it was my first time touching a guy below the waist, and it felt weird, and the condom wouldn't go on, and then Josh asked if it was my first time. I didn't answer right away. He started to push me away, and he said something about how he didn't want to do anything I wasn't ready for. He was sweet about it. He was kind. But I wanted to have sex with someone, anyone, I needed to just get it over with, and I figured it probably didn't matter if I was ready or not because Roya was probably going to sleep with Tall Matt anyway, so I lied. I lied. I said that it wasn't my first time and that it was fine. I tried to ignore the ache in my chest. I told him I wanted it even though I didn't. The lights were off, but I guess Josh heard my voice do that stuffy thing it does when I'm trying not to cry, and he said I didn't sound so sure, and he tried to grab the condom out of my hand, and I got flustered. And we were both struggling with the condom, and then his dick exploded. <laughs> and not in the way people joke about, not in the, like, it happens to a lot of guys kind of way. 
Every summer, Marcelina cuts a hole into a watermelon and jams a handful of cherry bombs into it and then lights them and we run away and watch the carnage. That's the way Josh's dick explodes. And somehow it only gets better from there. I know it's tough to believe, but it's really, really amazing. So tonight is March 5th, which is a very, very special day, not just because I'm here with my friend Sarah Gailey, uh, and not just because it's the day that I'm celebrating the launch of my, the paperback of my book, but because it's the 66th, and, whoop, 66th, wow, here we go. You got this. 66th, <sighs> nailed it, anniversary, big buildup for The Creature from the Black Lagoon coming out. Very exciting. Hands up for Creature. So the creature from the Black Lagoon is a really, really special monster for a lot of reasons. He's the first universal monster that was really out in daylight. He's the first universal monster that was played by multiple men in one movie. He's, uh, you know, was the the only classic one in the Pantheon. And I'm talking, we all know the Pantheon. If you have your own additions, we can fight later. You know, mm-hmm. creature from the Black Lagoon is one of the classic universal monsters. Uh, but he's also the only one that was designed by a woman. And that woman is a name, is a uh, lady named Millicent Patrick, and she's my hero. And that made Creature from the Black Lagoon really, really important to me. Uh, So when I was a kid, I realized that I was a huge monster fan, and I was the weirdo in my family. If you can't see me right now, I look like the only weirdo in your family. (laughs) I have a neck tattoo. I can't do anything else besides talk about monsters. Uh, So when I was a kid, I was like, okay... I have to give myself a monster education. No one, I have no big brother or sister. No one's going to teach me about this stuff. I have to do it. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go through all the, all the classics, Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, all of them. And I finally got to the creature from the Black Lagoon and I completely fell in love with it. It is, it really still holds up for an old monster movie. Uh, you know, I, I really empathized with the creature. I fell in love with it, and I did what every film nerd does after they watch a movie. Is I had to know how it was done. I had to go online and look up who made the monster and all the behind-the-scenes photos and trivia that there was to be had. And I was the only girl monster like lover that I knew. I didn't know. I, I all of my heroes up until that point were guys like Rick Baker and Tom Savini and Dick Smith. It just never occurred to me that girls did stuff like that. It just I was very happy to be a monster fan. And all of a sudden, I was scrolling through Google Image and seeing cool pictures of the creature and like being a super nerd. And there was a picture of a woman working on the creature suit. And maybe it was like, it was sort of like what a time traveler would would feel like if they saw an iPhone or like a toilet that works. I was just like, wait, what? And there was this picture of a woman working on the creature and it was completely blew my brain open. And all it said was Millicent Patrick, designer and illustrator. And that was it. All of a sudden, my whole world changed and I realized that I could do this. I could make monsters. I could make monster movies. Girls did these things. Wait, Whoa, 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 what? Uh, So cut to many years later, I ended up becoming a monster filmmaker for a living. And up until that point, that's all anybody knew about Millicent Patrick. She had no Wikipedia page, no nothing. All people knew is that she maybe worked on Creature from the Black Lagoon. And all I, I, I needed to know more about her, but there was nothing out there. So I decided to dedicate my life and all of my savings and three years of my time to trying to find her story. Because what happened to Millicent Patrick is that she did design the creature from the Black Lagoon. But the problem was that her boss at the Universal Monster Shop was a man named Bud Westmore, and he wanted to take the credit for it. 
the he didn't think the movie was going to do very very well but when it started to do gangbusters and it still does it's still like everybody knows creature from the black lagoon even if you're not a monster nerd maybe you saw shape of water and you're like wow that's kind of sexy like that's all from (laughs) that's all from creature from the black lagoon and the movie came out and it started doing well and she went on this tour to promote it but she had to promise him that she wouldn't tell him tell anybody that she did it that it was he who designed it and she was like okay still I'll, i'll do it i'll go promote it and she did so well and the movie did so well, and all of a sudden he was like, wait, this is doing great. I want credit for this. So by the time she came back from the tour to promote Creature from the Black Lagoon, he had fired her and blacklisted her. And that was it. Nobody knew what happened to Millicent Patrick. When I was started working on this book, nobody even knew if she was still alive. And I said, you know what? I want to know. The everything that, everything that this book came from was me wanting to know what happened to Millicent Patrick, because Millicent Patrick showed me that I belonged here and it felt like I needed to do something for her. And I'm not going to tell, if you haven't read the book, I'm not going to tell you the rest. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> but uh, I went on a big journey to find out what happened to her and what I found was more incredible and amazing than I could have even imagined. I like to call her the Forrest Gump of the 1950s, even though she wasn't as good at running. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she was a really, really incredible person. Her story just... Uh, goes all across Hollywood, all across different media, and I spent a long time trying to find it, and I did find everything, and you can read all about it now. It, the, the book, I will warn you, is not a straight biography. It's sort of like Julie and Julia, but for weirdos. <laughs> uh, because when I started writing the book, I realized that I needed peop- to give people a reason to care about her. And I needed to, the the easiest way I knew how to do that was to show people why I care about her. And so I started weaving my own story of trying to find her into the book. And what what easier way to show why one woman's legacy was buried than to show people how absolutely, I know there's a child somewhere in here, effing difficult (laughs) it was to unearth it. So that's what Lady from the Black Lagoon is. It has been the greatest honor of my life to unearth her legacy and to show people that this is what this woman did. This is what, I mean, there's this huge push right now to get more women behind the camera, you know, writing, directing, drawing things, making comics, making everything. And that's amazing. But it is so important for women to know that we've always been here. We have a legacy here. We belong here. We are so important to this genre and every genre. And that's what Millicent Patrick proves. And that's why she's important to me. And that's why she should be important to everybody. And I am so thrilled that you're all here tonight to to hear me and Sarah talk. And if you haven't read the book, I hope you love it. And if you are, if you already read it and you loved it, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. We have questions we do sarah and i are both very organized so we came up with some discussion questions that are because on the surface it might seem like our books aren't very similar but they actually are so sarah both of us wanted to write about female friendship and female power and that's something a theme that is really really important to both of our books what made you want to i mean when we were magic is just diving in to this group of women who are magic like what made you want to go into that world? You know, when I was, uh, I was about to say when I was a teenager, but also like, like yesterday. Aren't we always teenagers? Yeah. Forever. Uh, <laughs> I mean, when I, when I was a teenager through literally this morning, um, yeah. I, I have always been terrified to lean on my friends. Um, 
I don't know if anyone else in the entire world can relate to this feeling of, oh, I better not ask too much from the people who tell me that they love me because what if it turns out they only love me until I ask them to pay attention to me or until I ask them for help or until I what if they only sec- What if they only love you, but they secretly hate you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that totally reasonable thing that I think sometimes. Um, in writing this book, the, the reason that I wrote this book is because my literary agent sat me down and was like, why aren't you writing YA? And I was like, oh, I'm not cut out for YA. I'm not good enough of a writer for YA. The people who are writing YA right now are so brilliant and innovative. And I was like, mm, I'm just some guy. I can't pull that off. And my agent said this thing that he says to me a lot. It's really messed up. Um, he said, oh, okay. No, that's fine. You don't have to do it. If you don't think you can. <laughs> and I was like, this is the one time that didn't work. I was like, no, literally, I don't think I can. And he, he's too smart for me. He said, um, no, that's fine. That's fine. I understand why you don't think you can. You know, it's, it, it must just be that you don't think you have anything relevant to say to teenagers. Woof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and I thought about it for a little while, and I realized the thing that I needed to hear when I was a teenager and also yesterday, is that my friends love me and want to be there for me, and that I shouldn't be scared to take up space in their lives. Um, and, you know, I, When We Were Magic features a, a gang of mostly female best friends, one character who's exploring gender identity and hasn't really landed yet, which is also an uncertainty that was really important to me to put in here because we don't all know, right? Like, our understanding of ourselves changes every day. And so it was important to me to put a character in here who's like, yeah, I'm using she, her pronouns right now. I don't know what's going to happen when I go to college and I have more room to be the person who I am. So like for expediency's sake and for accuracy to that character's current gender identity, I feel comfortable using the the term female friendship and, you know, girl gang in here. But um, that uncertainty is also part of that uncertainty of leaning on your friends. Because what if you say to your friend, actually, I think my pronoun might be they or he or a, a neo-pronoun that you've never heard of before in your life. And what if your friend goes, oh, okay, I'm never speaking to you again. I wanted to write a book where that terrifying outcome doesn't happen and where the main character spends the entire book feeling like it could happen anytime. She's asking her friends to help her deal with the fact that she accidentally murdered a boy and they all need to use their magic powers her magic powers, which went wrong and murdered the boy to try and fix this problem, it's a huge ask. We all like to say that we have a best friend who we would call if we need to get rid of a body. I have two cats that are very hungry. Oh, I know. They would be on it. I, on, honestly, it I would just call them like directly. It might take like a week, but it's fine. I would just text Sailor and Lula directly. <laughs> I, would, I would hit them up in the group chat and be like, hey guys, I got some faces for you. But we all like to say that, but you know, then... I personally am terrified to like text a friend of mine and be like, hey, are you mad at me, right? It, it's a huge disconnect. And so the reason that I wanted to write about the power of friendship and the things that friendship can do for you with people who truly love you and support you as the person who you are and for who you are, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about what that can be and what that can do and how much you can lean on that, how much more you can lean on that than you know. When you think about your friends, you think, oh my gosh, I just wish that I could be there for them. I just, whatever they need right now, I wish that I could be the person who can give it to them. And if I can't, I want to find a way to be there for them in the place that, that their heart is. 
But then so many of us are like, oh, I better not ask my friends for literally anything because they'll probably hate me immediately. <laughs> A um, rational, yeah. normal response. Totally normal, sane and fine way <laughs> to think and feel all the time every day. <laughs> Um, and that's why that's why I wanted to write about this. What made you want to write about the power of female creators? It's funny because it also started with my literary agent. Uh, always listen to your literary agent unless they're a turd. Then get rid of them and find a new one. But if they aren't, listen to them. They know what they're talking about. My the good liter- ones are so devious. I know. My, but my ours are so good. And yours is so pure of heart. Yeah. Mallory's literary agent is one of the the most. He's a human slice of apple pie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's very wholesome. Very, a good soft boy. A good fit. Very good. You know, wholesome, <laughs> all-American. Very normal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my, the, I write, wanted to write my book because I was really mad. Uh, and Millicent Patrick had been my hero for a really long time, and I didn't know anything about her. And I wanted to know. You know, a re- really a lot of everything came from just wanting personally to know what happened to Millicent Patrick. Again, nobody knew if she was even alive. And my literary agent was the one who was like, wow, that sounds like a great book. And I was like, ah, yeah. He was like, <clears throat> sounds like a great book, Mallory O'Mara. And I was like, oh, sh- oh crap. Okay, right. Yeah, let's do this. Uh, but I, I wanted so much to find this woman's story because so many people believed, I, I mean, again, spoiler alert, Millicent Patrick designed the freaking creature, creature from the Black Lagoon. It just, it just happened. It's a fact. But there are so many men on the internet, I know, shocker, who, <laughs> who think that she didn't. And I wanted to prove them wrong. Because I feel like if I could prove that Millicent Patrick belonged in the war, war, world of horror, then I could prove that I belonged there. And it's sort of, for a while I was like, why am I so emotionally invested in this? And I was like, oh, right. And it became such a huge personal project, and I realized that I was carrying this woman's banner. And I wasn't just carrying her banner. I was carrying all, like, women who make things, women who write things, women who like horror, women who like monsters, women who are weird, women who want to do things that no one else has ever done before. I was carrying all of our banners into battle, and that was really what pushed me on. It was very difficult to write this book. It took a lot of money and a lot of time. And I did the lion's share of it before we had even sold it. Uh, so I was just sort of like, well, hope this works out. Uh, but I wanted so badly to prove to the world that she did this. She had done so much for me. She quite literally opened the door to realizing that I could do what I do for a living now. And I wanted to give back to her and put her back where she belonged. Uh, so being a, a mad, spiteful jerk is turns out great for you in the end, I think. Yeah, that's where the money's at, is in the spite. In sp- oh, all the money's in spite. It's no. great. I'm going to say something because I don't know if you will say it about yourself. You were saying that Millicent opened the door for you and really like changed your life and direction that was available. Um, history is not immutable. History is not objective because, again, objectivity is a myth. History is how we understand the past and what we make of it and what we say about it and the stories that we tell about it. And the story that was being told about Creature from the Black Lagoon for a long, long, long time was that Bud Westmore did it. And Millicent Patrick wasn't part of that history. And in writing this book, Mallory O'Mara has changed that history, has changed the story that we tell, has changed the conversations around it. I see people 
ev- literally every day on the internet being like, did you know that Millicent Patrick is the one who designed this and not Bud Westmore? Some guy tried to do that to me on Facebook the other day. It was extremely <laughs> funny. <laughs> I was like, to tell. <laughs> so literally, Mallory, you changed the shape of Hollywood history by writing this book and doing that research and spending all that money and taking all that time. Yeah, screw you men on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> So both of our books are also very much about women finding their power and managing their power, especially women and people who don't normally have power. What do you, how, how do you, how did you delve into that for When We Were Magic? Oh man. I mean, like yours is literal power. I mean, I love Melissa Patrick, but she couldn't do actual magic. Do you know that a hundred percent? No. <laughs> so, you know, sequel. Millicent Patrick, <laughs> Millicent Sorcerer. Patrick, art wizard. <laughs> um, yeah, mine, mine is literal powers. I didn't get into this in the reading because I was trying to keep it concise because we've, you know, we're doing a lot here tonight. Um, but these girls all have magic powers, and, and there is so cool. It's the kind of magic powers that I definitely kind of pretended to have when I was like a preteen. When I was a preteen, and I was like, maybe I have magic powers, and just nobody realizes it, and then I'd be like. And, you know, nothing would happen, but... Waiting for that Hogwarts letter. Um, any day now. Any day. I know I'm just late on enrollment, and they're going to get back to me. The postage is really funky from Hogwarts. Yeah, it, it, could... well, it's hard to pay owls with inflation. Oh, God. And they can't count. <laughs> so they're always like, did you give me my change? Anyway, um, these girls have literal magic powers. They they can alter the shape of reality around them. And... Like all teen girls can do, by the way. That's the really crazy part. Yeah. Teen girls are very powerful. Extremely. And society is terrified of that. Society and culture, terrified of teen girl power. When the Beatles, if you guys heard of the Beatles, (laughs) they were a band. Uh, They're like these British Your dad probably likes them. Yeah, whatever. They did some songs for a bit. And when they first started out, their fan base was teen girls. They were One Direction. Teen girls loved them. And so everyone was like, that band's stupid. That music's stupid. We don't care about it. It's stupid. And then some men were like, maybe it's good. And then all of a sudden everyone was like, whoa, the Beatles, perfect. And then they made a movie about how the world will be totally different if there had never been the Beatles. Um, people were, were so freaked out by teen girls having any interests, any agency, any power. We want to tell teen girls that they don't have those things, that their interests are unimportant. That's why I had this narrative in my brain for like, years and years, that I was not like other girls. I was like, no, I'm not. Because you have magic powers. No, because everyone else has magic powers, and I don't. You have magic powers. Yes, I do. Um, For a long time, I was like, I don't like things that girls like. I don't like any of that. I'm not part of that. That's stupid. I'm not stupid. And, you know, I I really bought into that. These girls have magic powers that they don't fully understand. They don't understand their magic powers any better than, like, I understand how my pancreas works. I kind of know what it does. Um, Yeah, kind of. But I don't really know how it does it. I don't really understand it. I just use it every day. And I wanted to write about that innate, instinctive power that teen girls have. I wanted this book cover when we were talking about it. We were emailing, and you know, I don't know if you all know this, authors don't have a lot of power over book covers. We can kind of make some requests and some adjustments, but for the most part, they're like, this is the cover that you get, and you better like it. And then we go, oh my god, I got a book like that. But I got the opportunity to make some requests for this one because the characters are featured on it. 
And I said, I want looking at this cover to feel like you were walking through your town and you turned a corner and these girls are standing there and instinctively your brain goes, oh no. <laughs> because they're powerful, they're scary, they're intimidating. They have all this, even without the magic, all this power in them. And they can use it in a lot of different ways and they can screw up with it and it can go wrong in ways they don't understand and they can also use it to love and support each other. Feelings. That's what I'm made of. Oh. <laughs> what made you want to talk about female power, female dis, not disenfranchisement means a different thing, but like <laughs> disempowerment yes. in Hollywood especially and in your own life? Yeah, so I come from a similar background as you can probably tell. I like heavy music. Uh, a lot of, I like horror. I like a lot of things that are male dominated. Um, so I grew up definitely in that phrase of like, I'm not like other girls. I like heavy stuff. I'm cool. Uh, and Millicent Patrick, that was actually for a really long time. One of the things that I had a hard time with her, I was like, Oh, she's the first girl who designed a monster. Amazing. But she really liked wearing pearls and dresses and heels. And it was a huge, huge disconnect for me until I realized, like, Millicent's the one who showed me, like, you can do both. And it's great. She was the one who, through writing this book, there was so much of my, I feel like Millicent Patrick exorcised with an O uh, uh, a lot of things from me. And she taught me so, so much. And I, through writing this book, I got to explore. Because Millicent Patrick had so much power when she was working. I mean, she was one of the first female animators at Disney. She was the first female monster designer and makeup designer at Universal Studios. But she didn't really realize it at the time you know it wasn't like she drew a drawing and like a bunch of confetti came down from the ceiling and an alarm went off like a girl did something yay it wasn't like that that's not what happened she just was making art that she wanted to do and because of that and because of the you know still i mean the studio system that we have and we all know there's a lot of problems with women in film right now that it you don't say crazy right uh, oh, jeepers. <laughs> the, the system that is in place works to take people and especially women away from their power and it's very very easy to read this book and to read stories from women and go well gosh why didn't you say something why don't why did she do something and a lot of people say that to me well why didn't she do something i'm like cool what she what, what could she have done and they're like uh, uh I, like what do you want her to do like like get a giant spear and put bud westmore's head on it that yes. would have been very cool i want uh, that <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 she, I had to forgive her for a lot of, you know, not realizing her own power. And in doing that, I got to forgive myself because in the book, I do write a lot about my own experiences in film because it's so easy to listen to a story about a woman who had a hard time in film in the 1950s and be like, oh, well, that's just how things were back then. But it's not. It's not. We just went through another Oscar season where they couldn't cough up a single female director to nominate for an Oscar, let alone every single other category. You know, this is exact. This is how films are now. And so to show people that, I show. I, I write about my experiences as a female filmmaker. They will make you very mad. They made me very mad. But writing about them made me, and, and looking at them through the lens of Millicent Patrick made me forgive ourselves because we put so much of the onus on the people who this stuff is happening to. Like, well, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you that? Why didn't you say anything? And I was asking myself those same questions while I was writing about Millicent. And then it made me turn the 
turn the spotlight, the great eye of, great patriarchal eye of Sauron on myself. And I have to say, well, why didn't I? And you realize that it's okay. And I got to forgive myself. And thinking about women in power and the dynamics that exist in our, in the society we live in was, uh, ended up being a great joy for me and let me forgive myself and forgive a lot of women and be more empathetic and be kind to myself. And I really think that writing about Millicent Patrick made me a better person. And I think that there's a lot to say about who we forgive for what. You know, we we don't yes. want to forgive the people who don't fight back against these injustices because you, you know, I'm, I'm sure people in this room have experienced this, in order to survive in the workplace, in order to have the career you want to have, in order to avoid violence, sometimes you can't. You just have to say, okay. This is how things are. And we don't want to forgive those people. We question them so hard. We interrogate them to try and find out what they did wrong. But then we offer a lot of forgiveness to the people who perpetrate the... the. I'm trying to find a word that doesn't have swears in it. It's because tough. we're trying not to swear tonight. It's so tough. just imagine one. The, the <laughs> Choose stuff, your own adventure here. People who do the stuff yes. that causes harm to the people who we don't want to forgive. We, we leave so much room and we say, well, but they're great creators. They're a great filmmaker. They're a great writer. They're a great photographer. So we'll make space for them to hurt people. But yeah. then if someone's been hurt, we don't say, wow, they're a great creator. I wonder how great they could have been if they weren't being hurt. Think about all the other, we still, to this day, we are in 2020, there has still not been a monster designed by a woman by a major motion picture studio. Think about that. 66 years ago, still has not happened yet. You know, think of all the amazing monsters that, uh, and it's not, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that all the monster movies after Creature from the Black Lagoon were not super great after Millicent left. And I, I, as you're reading both of these books, I'd love for readers and listeners to think about that because there are a lot of situations in both where you're like, well, why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? And it's so much more, there's so much more gray area. There's not as much black and white. It's not like, oh, well, they, you know, when you're reading uh, When We Were Magic, you'd be like, well, why don't they just go tell somebody, you know? but they can't. Yeah. We've all got things that we, that we feel like we can't do, things that we feel like we can't fight back against. Um, you know, I, I also think it's really interesting what credit we give to female creators for being innovative and brilliant and what credit we don't. I don't remember if it was this book that I read it in or just a conversation you and I were having about the female animators on Snow White who made that movie really sing by using their own makeup to give Snow White the, the very lifelike appearance that she had, which was totally new for the time. And instead of saying, wow, that's innovative and brilliant and dynamic, a lot of people go like, those lady animators were using makeup. Isn't that fun? Isn't that cute? Isn't that great? But if a guy had like used his shoe polish, they would have been like, genius, he's a genius, incredible, <laughs> amazing. It's multimedia. Yeah. Uh, so, Sarah, we both, had, both of us had our adult debuts, our, like, full-length debuts last year. We learned a lot of things. Now is the time you all get to ask us writing questions. What did you learn during your debut process? What advice would you give to other writers? I know. Besides, buy a really nice bottle of bourbon. Yes. Buy a really nice bottle. Buy, buy a really nice bottle of bourbon. Buy a really nice water bottle that you can travel with because you'll get so dehydrated. Um, hand sanitizer too. Oh, so much of it. Also, with very much love to all of you. Whenever when we're signing and stuff tonight, we're gonna be like hand sanitizing every ten seconds. 
um, so that you please know. don't be offended. Yeah, we're very happy you're here. We just don't want to get germs. We don't want to get that that thing that's happening. Um, I also just don't like being touched that much, so yeah. it's a great excuse for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, the advice that I would give to someone who is having a debut year, especially a debut year like the one that we've had, is um, try as hard as you can up front to make space and ask your friends to make space for the things that you need. On brand with my book. When we were magic, available in stores all around you. Um, this is something that I, you know, obviously I've already said I struggle with and I struggled with a lot this last year is being able to say to my friends, hey, everything is happening all the time. I'm exhausted. I need space. I need help. I need you to be okay with it when my brain is made of fondue and I screw up on stuff. And I was fortunate enough to have really amazing friends who just knew that already, who were like, hey, everything's happening all the time to you. It's fine. I know that you're going to be a disaster. Um, but I think that I would have had a better year and I would encourage anyone who is launching a big project to give themselves a good year by just being prepared for that, for giving yourself an advance for the ways that you're going to screw up, asking your friends to love you because your friends will probably say, of course, dum-dum, I'm going to love you. What about you? You have had a humongous year. The time between your hardcover and this paperback coming out have been like Mallory O'Mara-a-thon. One blood tear comes out of Mallory O'Mara-a-thon. <laughs> oh, that's really good. It's been amazing, but it has been a lot. And I think one of the things I really like to tell writers is that um, – Writing is very weird in the way that, as the author, you are the point person for all things. So a lot of people think that you personally designed the cover, that you were choosing which bookstores you're going to, that you were, it's just you. It's like the Wizard of Oz. It's you pulling all the pulleys behind the scenes. That's not true. Uh, and it's very easy to get wrapped up in all the minutia of like, okay, well, I'm going to write a book. What is the book cover going to look like? What is this going to like? You can't think about any of that stuff because you're not in control of it. There's so much stuff as a traditionally published author. This is neither of us can really speak to being self-published. Oh, not at all. I am so sorry. I those people are warriors. We don't know how they do it. I'm not cut out for that kind of life. But for people, incredible. It's they're magic people. It's amazing. But for we are both tra traditionally published authors. We're speaking to being traditionally published. There's so much in the process that you cannot control. You cannot, honestly, sometimes you really can't control how big your book is. Some things get chosen in weird meetings that you were not a part of. Your your book cover, what, how much publicity, publicity you're going to get. Your what, title. Your title. All kinds of things are not in your control. Really the only thing you control is the work. And that's, it's hard to focus on that because everything else is shiny and fun. And you want to think about your title. I call it naming the band syndrome. It's like that one guy in middle school who's like really stoked about his new band and he's got a cool name for it and a logo that he drew in his notebook. And you're like, cool, dude. Uh, how many songs have you written? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'll get to that. But I made shirts. Listen, the shirts are what matter. That's why you get involved in music. That's why you get involved in publishing is for the sweet tote bags. <laughs> But Oh, yeah, have a tote bag plan in place if you're publishing a book. Seriously, I have a tote bag full of tote bags. I think there's a, <laughs> there's a, like a portal in there to a tote bag dimension. Uh, but it's very, and this is, it applies to anything that you're making. It's very hard to just focus on the work, but it is the most important thing. And it is truly the only thing that you can control. And it's, uh, you know, when you're going on tour, you're doing all these other things, you get very wrapped up in other, in other stuff, but you just can't control it. And it does make you feel like you're going bonkers and a lot of 
things are swirling around and you're just like frustrated because this thing, there's so many weird markers in writing like, oh, I want to make this bestseller list or I want to do this or do that. You're not in control of that. And as much as, as an anxious, ridiculous person as I am, I'm like, you know, you want to be in control of everything, but you can't be. So you just have to write the best book that you can, but also realize that that's all you did. You wrote the best book that you can and it's not going to be something for everybody just try to think about that one person out there that's going to really, really like it. And that's all that matters. And it's writing can feel really big and weird and you're tearing a piece of your heart out and throwing it out into the world and people are going to stomp on it or love it, whatever they do. But you can't think about that. It, it actually writing needs to that like weird place where you're home alone and you're not wearing pants and you're drinking bourbon. And maybe I'm revealing too much about my writing <laughs> process. Like that's what's, that's what matters. And that's where you have to stay. And that's also where the joy is. I oh, mean, I love not wearing pants and drinking bourbon. It's my favorite yeah. thing. I was talking about the writing, but writing is maybe second. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. when I'm not wearing pants and drinking bourbon, I'm like, might as well write. Sure. You know, just a, it's like a byproduct of not wearing pants that, and drinking yes, bourbon. For sure. I mean, I really should have dedicated this book to Buffalo Trace. <laughs> but like, that's, that's, you know, the, the book promotion stuff and the trying to see if you're on lists and like doing amazing events like this. It's great. We have a great time doing it. Yeah. But, but you can't also control it. You can't control it, and it's not why you get into it. If you're getting into writing in order to try and have a book event with as many amazing people as are here, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And so, you know, I always find that when I start to get really wound up in all the, I call it the work of being an author. There's being a writer, and then there's being an author. And being an author involves this. And whenever I get really wound up in this, and my brain starts falling apart, and it's like, you know, oh God, is anybody actually liking my book? What am I possibly doing out in the world? That's when it's time to go back and write. That's when it's time to take the pants off, pour the bourbon, get the laptop out, open a blank document and stare at it for 30 minutes. Also, never read your reviews, dear oh, God. No, 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 no. That way lies madness. Don't do it. Goodreads is the, for, for readers, great place. Good place. Good job. Goodreads for writers. Mm -mm. No, that's, a, I have... My my boyfriend reads all my reviews, and he is a saint, and re, like listens to things that I do, and I, I and my friends do too. I'm like, I remember when you got reviewed by NPR, and you said to me, you're like, is it good? Do they like it? <laughs> like, trust me, it seems silly, but you have to do that because you oh, yeah. that uh, reviews and stuff, they're not for you. That's the crazy part. Is it, it, it really difficult to wrap your brain around the fact that people are talking about the stuff that you wrote, and you shouldn't read it because it's not for you. It's for other readers to decide whether or not they want to read it. You, they're not sitting there going, I'm going to give Mallory O'Mara some good advice on how to write. No, that's not how any of this works. So it's very difficult when things start happening with the thing that you wrote to just sort of glaze, have your eyes glaze over and not pay attention to any of it. Like it's very weird. And it, we all have those moments where it's like 1130 at night and you're in oh, bed and you're like, the bad place. maybe I should look at Goodreads. Don't do it. Oh, I'm feeling... I'm feeling really good about myself. I bet I could get through reading a bad review, no problem. No. no. It's never going to happen. It never happens. No. You start reading, and the second that they say, I didn't really think this book is for me, you just go, no. And even if it's not, like, I, one single time, I was like, oh, it's a YouTube video someone made about my book. <gasps> no. Shouldn't be a bad thing. No, I know. I know it was bad and ruined my entire day. <laughs> the thing that, that finally clicked for me with, with, like, trying to stop that impulse was when I realized that um, I can't edit the book that's already out. 
Yeah, because that's what you can do. Yeah, there's this part of you that's like, you know, oh, I should listen to every feedback and incorporate it into what I do to try and be better, and I should be tough enough to listen to it. But the feedback doesn't mean anything to me because I already wrote the book. It's here in the store. I can't change it. It would take me a really long time to go through its whiteout and fix every copy when someone's like, I didn't like that you used the word dick on page all of them. Like, like I can't do it. Yeah, so it, it, it was very difficult for me to sell this book. Very, 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 very difficult for me to sell this book. And my wonderful rock star of an agent, Brady, kept at it because it's not a straight biography. It is a memoir biography detective story, Julie and Julia for weirdos. And so many publishers didn't want it for that reason. And I just had to keep going and not let it. And there was so many moments where I was like, well, maybe I can just change the entire book. And Brady, my wonderful agent, was like, no, you just this is what you're going to do. I believe in it. You believe in it. Let's go. And it's very hard in the face of people who are like giving you criticisms. And if you are a person who are, who is trying to get an agent or trying to work on your first book, whatever genre it is. Remember I write nonfiction, they write fiction, very different worlds, but whatever you're working on, you just have the first person who has to believe in you is you. And I know I sound like your mom right now. I'll be your mom. It's okay. <laughs> what, what, do yes. you mean that? Yes. Will you be my mom? Will you be my parent? Yeah. Sweet. (laughs) But it's very, you just have to believe in it and you can't, I I see a lot of writers who take criticism from everyone and you can't do that. You just kind of have to believe in yourself and have a couple other people who believe in you. Because if you are working on something and you're like, oh, I read this new memoir. Maybe I should do it like this. Or, oh, I read this, this review of this other book and they didn't like this. Maybe and my book does that. Maybe I shouldn't do this. You just can't. You have to really narrow your focus, especially in the age of the internet. It's so easy to get sucked into everybody's opinion and you just can't do that. It, it'll, it'll drive you bonkers I've, I've I know so many people who every time they get a rejection from an agent or from a publisher they revise their entire novel woof and I'm always like no 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 like you wrote the thing that you wanted to write you know if someone comes back to you and says hey this is racist fix it <laughs> but if someone comes back to you and says oh this wasn't for me because I don't like teenagers don't turn your YA into an adult Go find someone who's going to love the thing that you love. Yes, it's more important to find some uh, an editor, an agent, whoever it is, that understands what you want to do. Than It's just like dating. Oh, it's so much like dating. And it's exactly as stressful as dating. <laughs> I wish there was like a Tinder for editors. <laughs> a Tinder for agents. Oh, man. So what we're trying to say is believe in yourself try to focus on the things that you can control, especially if you're just starting out and it just seems like there's so much going on. All you can really do is write and work hard. I know that's boring and not very sexy, but that's what writing takes. All right, you ready to let them ask us questions? Yeah, are you are you all ready? We've got pretty weird, so you can ask us as many weird questions as you want. And about literally anything. The things we wrote, the things each other wrote, life in general. The delicious buffalo cauliflower I had before we came here. I'm still thinking about it. It was so good. It was saucy. Very saucy. Yeah. Just anyway. like our audience, hopefully. So this is your first YA book, right? Uh, what were sort of like the things you had to do differently in writing for a YA audience versus like not a YA audience? How like, do you talk to the cool young kids, Sarah <laughs> Gailey? <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. It is I, Sarah Gailey. Well, first of all, I wrote all of it on a skateboard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a 
Also, we're going to repeat questions back. It's an accessibility thing because we have microphones. So um, the question was, what's different about writing this, my first YA book, as opposed to everything else I've written, which is more geared toward adults? Um, I was really freaked out to write YA because of that question. I, listen, I'm not cool. I, I'm like, I'm really not. I'm not... I just learned what a visco girl is like three days ago, and I was so stressed out because I was like, the kids are using slang I don't even understand the origin of. Who am I? Where do I fit into the universe? Should I be buying a gravesite? Like, I was really scared that I was not going to be able to write for that audience because I'm not a teenager. Um, As most YA authors are not. True. Yeah. And I was, that did not occur to me. I was like, oh, well, I'll be the only one. All YA authors are just teenagers with mustaches on, like, <laughs> pretending to be older. They're, they're all standing on each other's shoulders in trench coats. And we're like, wow, all you're way, really All YA authors are three teenagers in a trench coat. Um, I, was real, I was real spooked about what would be different. And, you know, that question that my agent asked me was, you know, like, do you feel like you don't have anything to say to teenagers? And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what teenagers know and don't know. And my agent was like, hey, dum-dum, it's the same stuff that you didn't know when you were a teenager. So the thing that I had to do differently was instead of telling a story to fellow adults about things that adults think about, you know, mortgage, taxes, necktie, job, I wrote a story that was trying to speak to the teenager who I once was. And this actually is the book that changed my approach to writing. You know, I used to, for my first couple of books, I was very about like, What's the story I'm trying to tell? What's the plot? Uh, is the, Can I spell all the words? I don't know. I got a computer fixes that for me. <laughs> um, but with this book, I shifted my perspective to say, what do I want my reader to take away from this? What do I want? You know, this isn't message fiction by any means. A boy dies from his penis exploding. Like, it's not, I'm not doing an after school special here. But I did well. want to... Uh, Wasn't that in one of the D.A.R.E. programs? Like, you do meth and your penis explodes? Yeah. It's an after-school very special special. <laughs> um, I wrote this book thinking about what I wanted to change in my reader after they read it. I wrote it thinking of it as a conversation instead of a monologue. And it completely changed how I write. That's how I write now. You know, someone will... On a skateboard? Yes, on a skateboard, yeah. pantsless, with bourbon... Hell yes. <laughs> My house is a very stressful place. <laughs> I got the laptop in one hand and the bourbon in the other. Um, I right now thinking about what's my reader going to take away. And, you know, someone will approach me to do a short story for an anthology. And my first thought isn't what cool plot could I do? My first thought is how is this story going to change the person that reads it if I do it right? If I do it wrong, I don't know. Maybe they'll grow a tail. But... If I do it right, maybe they'll come away wanting to fight injustice. Maybe they'll come away wanting to ask their friends to love them better. Maybe they'll come away uh, terrified that something's living under their bed. Like, that's what I'm looking for. And that was, that was what was different about this book, but also how I'm different from writing this book. The first project I pitched after Lady from the Black Lagoon that is with my agent right now is a YA book, and it's nonfiction. It's going to be the it's world's... It's going to be so good. the world's first choose-your-own-adventure nonfiction. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it's going to be but so good. I, I struggled with it for a year, and I kept... I have done so many... I had done so many versions of the proposal, and I just... I knew it wasn't working. And it, because it's nonfiction, I have such a deep fear of men on the internet. Like, as a... I, think, I feel like, as a woman, a lot of us 
especially working in the space, have this fear of like someone correcting us all the time. Some man is going to come out of some dark sewer of the internet and tell me that I'm wrong about something. It's their favorite thing. It is their favorite thing. I literally... Bria, who is an, if you're a Reading Glasses fan, Bria's over here. Bria, we got a we got a, a, a fan mail today that was like, some guy was like, I just want to let you know I love correcting things. And I love correcting authors. And I was like, oh, God, I hope this guy gets struck by lightning. Uh, <laughs> but so I, when I wrote Lady from the Black Lagoon, it had to be airtight. It had to be everything was correct. And so I was working on this nonfiction until Brady, again, my wonderful agent, finally was like, Mallory would a teenager want to read this? And I was like, I felt so ancient in that moment. I was like, oh. I'm uncool. But he was absolutely right. It was boring. He's like, Mallory, because the book is about filmmaking. He's like, it's not about being right about every single tiny bit of minutia about filmmaking. It's about wanting a kid to want to read this. And he's like, what is the point of this book? I was like, I want young girls to want to make movies. He's like, great. Is this boring book going to want to make them do that? I was like, no. <laughs> You're right. Fine. Ugh. But he was totally right. So I kind of, I had to just stop thinking about men on the internet for a while and thinking about what would make a young person be excited about this book. And I got to make jokes more and I got to just fudge timelines a little bit and focus on not so much all the facts, but just about how fun and engaging it was. And it made me like writing more. I still was pantsless and drinking bourbon, but it was, (laughs) it was a lot of fun. So I really, uh, I got a lot from my experience of doing that. About the worst fear of men on the internet that you'll stop thinking about them. Oh, I know they're all right now. They're all shaking a little bit. Going, but it's like salting slugs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do we have any other? We will answer. Oh. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the question is uh, about that. I, I share a lot of hard truths and personal stories and hard things about Millicent's experience and my experience, and was I afraid to publish it? The answer is absolutely. Before this book came out, I did a whole lockdown of all of my social media, every online, even like my we, like my MeUndies account, like every single thing. I locked down the password. I made sure I, I really did a lot of security stuff because I was so afraid of men on the internet. And I w- uh, there was a lot of legal stuff. I, there's some stories that I tell that are about real men in the film industry, and we... I talked a lot to the lawyer about uh, the, at my amazing publisher, Hanover Square Press, and they we worked with them to make sure that um, I, I was just vague enough that they couldn't sue me. Uh, and we did we did a lot of a lot of things and changed a lot of wording. And I was very very terrified. I, I will tell you, every single morning for six months before Lady from the Black Lagoon, I woke up and went, <gasps> "Everyone's gonna hate my book and they're all gonna murder me." Oh my god! But I just dealt with it because. One, it was so important for me to tell those stories and be, I wanted everyone to know who Millicent Patrick was, but if it mattered to one woman, if one woman out there read this and was like, holy crap, I'm not alone, then it was worth it. And that's the thing. That's the thing that like, it's the sunlight to all the garbage men on the internet. You know, if it mattered to some other woman or changed somebody's mind, like I knew, I, I went into, writing the new book that I'm working on now is like such a breeze because this book really felt like I was marching into battle. And that why that's part of why book tour was so tough for it and why doing a lot of interviews and, you know, I have so many horror stories from interviews that I've done and things. 
I, I just knew it, but it was so important to me. So that's where the bourbon comes in. <laughs> I was just like, screw it, this matters. You know, she matters, we all matter. I'm gonna do this, let's go. And yeah, I haven't been murdered yet, so. <laughs> and never will. I'm too strong now. Yeah. Shout out to all my bodybuilders friends <laughs> from Bodybuilders Gym. I'm just too strong to kill now. <laughs> Bring it Westmore. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Although I will say there were events that I was not allowed to go to because they, the people there didn't want to make the Westmores mad. It's still happening. So the battle is still going on and I will fight it until I'm dead. Which won't be for a very long time because you're very strong. Thank you. Do we have more questions? I'm so surprised. For the better? Oh, well, the thing that one thing that really cool, was really cool that happened. I did a, an event in Reseda at a, at the library there. Uh, babe, was WonderCon last March or April? April, last April. Uh, that's my boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did an event in Resident last April, and Millicent Patrick's best friend's uh, film agent was there. And it was super cool, and I got to talk to him, but he didn't really tell me. The only, the only thing he, everything that I have learned so, since the book came out has reinforced my beliefs. The, everyone who I've talked to that knew Millicent, I've had emails from people. Uh, Millicent's last husband's daughter or emailed me after the book came out, and there is new stuff because of that in the book, just a little bit. Uh, everyone was just like, she's amazing. She's, she was incredible. We love her so much. So that has just been awesome. I think we got time for one. Yes. One more? Someone give a question to Sarah, because I've had two questions. Do you have a Sarah Gailey question? How would you ask them to choose? Ooh, okay. I'm gonna. I'll try. I'll try and answer both. Um, I love every book that I've written. My favorite book that I've written so far is probably the one that comes out next year. It's called The Echo Wife. Uh, Get excited, folks! It's early 2021. So You're gonna come to Skylight Books and purchase it for yourself and all your friends yes, and family. Yes, you are. Um, it's the story of the woman who invented adult duplicative cloning. So I've got one of you, and then I go whoop, and there's another one in a test tube. Uh, and she, it's the story of the year after her divorce from her husband, who she leaves when she discovers that he has been leaving a secret second life with a clone of her who he created by stealing her technology in order to have a less threatening version of her. Um, a nice light read. <laughs> real, there's a lot in there. Real personal. Um, my favorite part, you said you were you asking my favorite part of this book or my favorite part of my favorite part of writing this book? Oh man, my favorite part of writing this book was diving into friendship. I personally love my friends very passionately. Um, I I am like fiercely loyal and very devoted to my friends, and I got to put a lot of that 
spice into this book by expressing from the main character's point of view how much she loves her friends. You know, those little things that you notice about your best friend, that you know about them, the ways that you try and protect them. Um, in chapter one, I talk about one of the girls, Iris, who uh, she's the only one of the girls who glows when she does really intense magic. Her eyes glow and it embarrasses her. So she closes her eyes and none of her friends tell her that when she closes her eyes, they can still see that light because they know that it would make her feel self-conscious. And so they're like, you know what? Feelings. We're just not going to say anything about this. No one else is ever going to see it except for us because we only do magic when we're around each other. She, she doesn't have to know that this thing that she thinks is ugly that we think is beautiful is happening. Um, and that's all throughout here. There's the, I, I got to write about the ways that you know and love the people who you know and love, the little intimacies that we share, the, the tiny expressions that people make that they don't realize they're making, or the ways that they talk when they're feeling nervous or excited that they might not pay attention to, but you know, because you love them so much. And I got to put that in here. Um, I think that we as a society... so good. <laughs> I think we as a society de-emphasize platonic love a lot. You know, when you go through a friend breakup, it's the most awful, heart-rending thing. When I am in a fight with one of my friends, I'm like losing my mind for days. But we don't talk about that because we're like, what? You're not married. Who cares? And I think my favorite part of writing this book was getting to acknowledge how powerful platonic love is and, and how powerful friendships are. It's so good. All right, so Sarah, before we start signing, what are you working on right now? What is coming out for you this year that you're really excited about? Okay, uh, this year, the only things that I have clearance to talk about right now are uh, When We Were Magic and Upright Women Wanted, which is a novella about queer anti-fascist spy librarians on horseback in the near future Southwest. Yes, it is exactly everything you've ever wanted. (laughs) (laughs) It's up there and you can buy it. The Echo Wife comes out in early 2021 and right now I am working on the novel that will follow the echo wife which is about a woman who moves home to take care of her dying mother and becomes obsessed with the idea that there is something living under her childhood bed over the course of the book you come to realize three things Uh, the noises she heard under that bed when she was a kid were her father committing a series of grisly murders in the basement she used his bad habit to cover up a little exploration of her own and the thing that lives under the bed now knows everything so spooky. What about you? What are you working on? What's next? Uh, so the, I are, have already sold my next book. Uh, it is by the same team who did Lady from the Black Lagoon. I'm so excited about it. Uh, it is called Girly Drinks. It is the history of women drinking. Uh, I am so thrilled about it. When I first moved to Los Angeles, uh, my best friend Lauren got me a whole cocktail set. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't know you could get nerdy about drinks. And anything I can get nerdy about, I'm really excited about. And I started reading about cocktail because as soon as I get into something I want to read every book on it and I was like oh cool book written by a dude all right uh, oh book book written by a guy okay okay oh no women's history in this either oh what a bummer and I just I realized no one had written that and there were all these like in every book there'd be like one sentence here and there there was one sentence in a book about how during prohibition uh all social rules were upended when it came to drinking because all bars were speakeasies and, you know, weren't legal. And that was the first time women were allowed to drink in bars. And I was like, wait, hold on, hold the phone. I want to know more about that. And that was it. So I was talking to Lauren about it and she was like, you know what that means, right? And I was like, oh, I got to write another book. Be the change. (laughs) So I'm writing that. I'm really excited about it. Uh, I am working on my first novel right now, which I'm really excited about. It's very spooky. Um, 
and uh, that other nonfiction YA project and some other stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about. But Girly Drinks is the next thing. I'm really thrilled about it. Um, it will be, there are, if you are a Lady from the Black Lagoon fan, don't worry, there are footnotes. I am very, <laughs> probably not as many dick jokes. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. But I'm really excited about it. Uh, so thank you all so much for joining us. And I think now we're going to sign some books. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mallory. Yay! I can't see. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.